Roz is now going to come and bring us our reading for today from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, what's wrong with playing favourites? Who is the favourite child in your family? (laughs) That's a fairly quick response. (laughs) That's an interesting response from a mother. But... For everybody else, if you're not a parent, what about for you in in your family, at least if you're the child? Maybe it was you. Uh, I mean, I guess if you're an only child, then you you kind of have to be, right? But perhaps you were the golden child, the one who could do no wrong, who uh, enjoyed certain privileges that your siblings did not. Or perhaps you're the youngest, and you know, everybody knows the youngest is always the favourite, Right? Given that I uh, am the youngest and I was the only boy having two older sisters, uh, everybody thought that I must have been the favourite child. I'm not sure how true that is, seeing as I got hand-me-down clothes from my sisters. (laughs) You still see it today. On the other hand... Perhaps you're, you have, have never felt anything close to feeling like the favourite child. On the other hand, perhaps you feel like you've needed to actually earn your way into people's approval your entire life. And you actually hate it when people show favouritism to others. I'm sure many, if not all of us, have actually experienced this at some point 
even if it is not characteristic of our lives. Surely we have been the ones who were looked over because we weren't fast enough, because we weren't pretty enough, because we weren't cool enough. Being on the wrong side of favoritism can really sting, can't it? And yet, more often than not, what do we find when we find ourselves being out of favor? We work hard to get faster, we work hard to get prettier, we work hard to get cooler or richer so that we can be the ones who can then call the shots and be the ones who say who is in and who is out. And so we treat people according to what they can do for us. And as soon as what they can do for us is no longer worth the time, no longer worth us investing into that relationship, then they fall out of favor with us. And so the cycle continues. How do we stop the cycle? Well, that is the situation that was facing James in the churches that he was writing to. And so in our passage this morning, James has some fairly strong words to say about favoritism. It's also known as partiality. It's what we read in the ESV. I'm going to work through this passage through the grid of three points. Point number one, prevent partiality, particularly to the poor. Point number two, live under the law of liberty. And point number three, show mercy as you have been shown mercy. Let's dive right in and explore what James has to say about it with our heads and our hearts and our Bibles and our notepads wide open. Let's begin with point one, prevent partiality, particularly to the poor. As you can tell from the name of this point, the focus of this entire passage is partiality. But it has a particular emphasis on partiality towards the rich over the poor. So let's begin at verse one. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Once again, I'll point it out for our sakes. My brothers is also is an all-encompassing term, referring also to sisters. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James, as he says this, is equating those two titles. Our Lord Jesus Christ the one who is our Lord and our Christ and is also the Lord of glory. And perhaps James is being intentional here in using this not uncommon title for Jesus right here at the beginning. After all, how could you be amazed at the glory of the rich if your eyes are fixed on the Lord of glory? There could very well be intentional drawing attention to who Christ is as James introduces this section. And his instruction here in this verse is clear. He introduces and summarizes everything that he is going to say throughout these 13 verses. Show no partiality. Show no favoritism. And James then illustrates what this partiality might look like with a hypothetical situation. Let's read about it from verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly 
And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? As we're going to see, this is more than just a hypothetical problem. James is likely referring to actual practices of these Jewish Christians. And despite us being removed from James's original audience, both by time and culture, this is a scenario that we wouldn't find too hard to connect to, right? Both in terms of the situation and in terms of the points that James is actually making. The assembly that James is referring to here, that word is a typical church gathering, and it indicates, just as 1 Corinthians 14 does, that outsiders came into the gatherings, the church gatherings. And obviously what has happened is that rich people were coming in and they were being given preferential treatment. They were being shown the best seats in the house while the poor were given the worst being told to stand over there, presumably out of the way or out of sight, or as the Greek says, under my footstool, at my feet, as the ESV says, on the floor. That is what was happening. That is what the people in the church were saying to those who would come in and how they would be treated depending on their status. I'm not sure if you noticed when you came in, but there is a reserved sign on one of the seats here in the front row. Anyone notice it? A few people. Did you wonder, those who did, about who it was that was going to be sitting in that seat? Did you wonder if it was going to be an important person? Or did Brayden give it away to you and say, there's nobody who's going to sit in that seat? To offer that seat to somebody who rolled up to church in a Lamborghini and was wearing top brand Armani or Gucci or whatever it is that's really important these days and adorned with gold jewelry while telling someone who has come off the street into our gathering to sit down at the back or perhaps in the other room, out of the way. Doing those things is exactly what James is talking about. Friends, that is the sin of partiality. To treat people with favoritism depending on their wealth or their status in society is sin. But notice James's words in verse 4. In doing this, you have made distinctions among yourselves. You see, not only did those distinctions exist in the actual separation of people in church, of of telling the rich to sit in the good place and telling the poor to sit in the bad place, but they exist in the very minds of the ones who are doing the separating. James calls out and tells them, calls them out, the church, and tells them that they are judges with evil thoughts. Treating someone like this doesn't just come to somebody in the moment. It's not like you just suddenly see a rich person and think, oh, okay, yeah, great. Let's just uh, give them the, high, the, the best seat. You see, when James says, if you pay attention to the rich, as verse 3 says, to the one who is clearly of a higher status 
as you observe these two different people coming in from opposite sides of society, then you are making those distinctions already in your mind. You have already separated those people. And such a judgment, such a thought in thinking that and looking at different people and thinking that person is more worthy than this one. That is an evil thought. Now let's be clear about something here. James is not saying that all judgment is evil. Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 5 of his letter to them to walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In order to do, what, in order to do that, one needs to make judgments about what is evil and what is good. Okay, There's not just a blanket, don't judge statement that's being made by James here. And James also isn't saying that it is evil to think in your head, that person is rich, that person is poor. That is simply a recognition of a fact. To try and stop yourself from thinking that thought is like trying to stop yourself from thinking, Yared is a teacher, Paige lives in Palmerston, and JR is clearly colorblind judging by the fact that whenever he dresses himself in the morning, his wife and kids have to tell him to get changed before he goes out. All right? those, those things, they are just observations of reality, observations of truth. I know the problem, the thing that James is calling out is the thought that says, that person is rich, and I probably have a fair bit to gain from that person, so I am going to seek favor from them. And that person is poor, and they can't offer me much. So I'm not going to treat them as somebody who has any value or who is worth my time. The judgment and the evil thought is the one that prizes the materially rich over the materially poor. Brothers and sisters, are we not so easily prone to thinking such thoughts. Now, it's true that the people reading James's letter are in a different situation to us. From what we can tell from this letter, it's likely that a decent number of people in the churches would have been poor. But even in our particular, con- in our particular context, where we, we don't, we're not necessarily in the same situation... And even in our current stage, where we don't have lots of visitors coming from extreme ends of the wealth scale, surely such thoughts still exist for us. Can you imagine if God, the Lord of glory, the King of glory, only valued us for what we could do for Him? Can you imagine if God, the Lord of glory, only valued us the same way that we value others? If He treated us the same way? That's a frightening thought. 
One that I'll come back to. What does James say to his readers after making such a firm charge? Well, he contrasts the poor and the rich, exposing the foolishness of pandering to the rich who are treating them poorly and viewing the poor as of no value. Let's read from verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? There it is again, beloved. The term beloved. And this time, like he's done the last couple of times, James uh, James used the term, he gives them another instruction. What does he say in this verse? Listen. Listen to this next part because it is important. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Just pause there for a moment. God has done what? Chosen. He has chosen. That's not an accidental choice of word. What James is pointing to here is God's sovereign choice in electing those who come to faith. And now, uh, that is, of course, a, a bigger topic to explore than what I can do justice right now. But it's important to recognize that this is a fundamental assumption that James is making. You see, what James is saying here, and also in verse 7, where he talks about us being called, is the same thing that many Christians throughout the ages have said. Our salvation does not depend on any particular trait that we might have or bring. It does not depend on what you can bring to God's table. It's not because you're more radical than the next person or, more, or that you're rarer than the next person or because you're richer than the next person that you are saved. No, the very first cause of your salvation is God Himself. He sovereignly chooses with no regard of what kind of person you were or what kind of person you would be. And that's one of the reasons we call it grace. When we say that it is all of grace and that God receives all the glory for our salvation, we mean that there is no single part of it that we can credit to ourselves. Of course, we respond to God's grace in faith. We need to actually grab hold of it and respond to it in faith. But that is like the receiving of a gift. You don't pay for, you don't prepare, you don't have any participation in a gift that somebody else gives you. You simply receive it. And James highlights here that in God's sovereign choice, He actually chooses in a way that is contrary to how the world would choose. Instead of favoring the rich, he has made foolish the wisdom of the world by choosing the poor to be rich in faith. I mean, that's that's the problem with James' readers including us, isn't it? 
We choose according to the world's standards. God has always sovereignly chosen this way and has always made it clear that He has done so. That it is up to His own divine prerogative. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8, makes that clear in His choosing of Israel. It was not because they were more in number, but it was because they were the fewest of all people. The Lord has chosen them. More often than not, when the world thinks something is wise... God exposes our sin by turning that upside down and revealing His wisdom. Now, it's important to recognize here that James is not saying that all the poor in the world are rich in faith. Just because some, perhaps even most of a certain type of people might be something doesn't mean that all of them are. It's kind of like when people say, as I heard quite often in the US, Australians, especially those who live in Darwin, you know, they're also laid back and chilled. You know, that's generally true, but I'm sure you, like me, know plenty of people who aren't. <laughs> those who live in Darwin also. That's James's point. Well, you might actually think that, that perhaps you might be drawn to this idea that, yeah, all people who are poor are, are, are in better spiritual state than us. You might get that impression from the things that Jesus said. So, for example, in Luke 6.20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But no, James's point is that uh, there is a certain sense in which God has chosen those who are materially poor to be rich in faith. The commentator, uh, commentator Doug Moo makes this observation. He says, The poor became almost a technical term designating those who were both economically oppressed and spiritually inclined. And so it's important for us not to overread James here. You see, to say that uh, if you live in Darwin and you're Australian, you are automatically laid back and chilled out would be wrong. In the same way, to say that if you are poor, you are automatically rich in faith is a leap that James does not make. No, James is still consistent with the rest of Scripture when he teaches about the fact that we are saved by grace through faith and not by our social status. His and Jesus' point simply is that the poor are often more receptive to the gospel than others. We ought to be careful about how we apply this. The Bible certainly warns us about the dangers of wealth. You cannot serve both God and money. Don't take that lightly. But there is also a danger in assuming that poverty automatically means you have richer spirituality. Does your mind quickly go to thinking that you would be more righteous if you were poorer? I know that's the way I'm inclined to think. It's an understandable impulse. As I said, the Bible warns so much about the, the lure and, and uh, danger of money. And we read of missionaries throughout the ages who surrender the comforts of Western life and devote themselves to a far lower standard of living in order to bring the gospel to people who have been hardly reached. 
We hold them up. It's important to realize there, there is without a doubt great faith on display when people make such decisions. And such things, as I've said before, are, are the things that are always worth us considering and thinking about and what it is that we ought to lay down and surrender for the cause of Christ. We ought to assess constantly whether we are living beyond what we actually need, whether there is more that we can continue to surrender for Him. But it would be a counterproductive and it would eventually be a sinful exercise to intentionally make yourself poor and then pride yourself on that, thinking that it elevates you above other believers. Such a belief undermines the gospel of grace. It undermines the law of liberty. Brothers and sisters, beware of sliding into a kind of proud poverty. All of that said, surely our poor brothers and sisters who are rich in faith have something to teach all of us. After all, there's a reason why the poor seem to generally be more receptive to the gospel, right? And I reckon it has something to do with the fact that the promises of God to those who love Him, the perfection and the completeness that James talked about in chapter 1, and the crown of life and being heirs of the kingdom, as he talks about in this verse, Surely our poorer poorer brothers and sisters have a more tangible grasp on those promises. And surely they see them as far more real and worth remaining steadfast for than those of us in the rich West usually appreciate. Talk to anyone who has close contact with our brothers and sisters in poverty across the globe. And I'm sure you would find, if you have not found already, that that is not an uncommon story. Surely there is much we can learn from them in our comfortable yet highly distracted and discontented lives about finding real joy in God's promises. Brothers and sisters, does knowing that you are an heir of the kingdom give you the the air in your lungs that you need to keep pressing on for the king? Well, after James talks about why we ought to see the poor through spiritual eyes instead of natural eyes, he calls out his readers for their actions. And here is our clearest indicator that James is talking about actual problems in the churches. And here is where James points out most clearly why, aside from the fact that it's sinful, it is really dumb to show favoritism to the rich. They are the ones who are oppressing you, he says. They're the ones who are giving you grief and they're dragging you into court. And not only that, they're not only making things bad for you, they're also blaspheming the honorable name of the one who called you. They are treating the very faith that you profess, the very thing that you hold dear as garbage. Why on earth would you want to show partiality to those who could not care less about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? 
Why would you want to suck up to those who spit on our Lord? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? In the same way that showing partiality is easily relatable to us, even though we are removed from the original context, so the desires which drove these Christians to show favoritism to the rich drive us also. Aren't the same forces at work in our own minds as we pigeonhole people? Don't we more often than not seek to gain wealth and status and things that we want in this life through people that we can pander to? When we look at people through the world's eyes rather than through God's eyes, we start to favor those that are likely to provide us with what's called upward social mobility. Moving up in social class than those who are more likely going to drag us further down. We start to treat people according to what they can do for us rather than out of what God says about them. That's because we want to join them, don't we? We want to join them on the inside. We want to be Gatekeepers of the cool club as well. And while this is certainly true when it comes to money, it's just as true about status. Even though James's focus here is division along economic lines, we show partiality along so many others. Wouldn't you rather hang out with the people who are going to put you in the right Circles? Which circle do you want to be in? Which people, perhaps without you even realizing, do you gravitate towards because uh, you know that they are going to be worth your time? How do you categorize and judge people based on different factors that are appealing to you? What do you hope to gain from them? What kind of currency? Vocational currency? Social currency? Cryptocurrency? Brothers and sisters, I pray and will continue to pray that this will not characterize our church. As Paul says in Galatians 3:28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Paul is not saying here that those distinctions no longer exist. He's saying that they no longer matter. So it ought to be in our church. May we continue to guard against wanting to separate ourselves into cliques and cloisters. But how can we do that? How do we work against such a natural instinct to show partiality? Well, that brings us to point two. 
live under the law of liberty. Live under the law of liberty. Let's read verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James seems to uh, love coming up with unique ways of labeling the gospel. The term royal law is found only here in the Bible. The use of the term royal uh, indicates that James is saying that this law has come from the king himself. Even though it may not seem like it at first, when James uses this term, he's not actually just referring to the one commandment that he quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but to the law more generally as understood through Christ's finished work. There are a few reasons for this. Firstly, the word law was most often used broadly and not in reference to one specific commandment. And even this commandment, the one that uh, he has quoted from Leviticus 19.18, was often thought of as a summary of the commandments that were to do with how the Israelites related to one another and to others. Jesus himself uses it this way in Matthew 22.39-40. Secondly, it was also more common to talk about keeping the law rather than fulfilling it, which is the word that James uses in verse 8. So James is indicating that it's about more than simply obeying one command. And finally, what James goes on to say in the next verses is much broader in nature and finishes with an instruction to speak and to act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, which is, as you might remember, a term he has already used with reference to the gospel. If you really fulfill This royal law, he says, you are doing well. Now, there there might be a bit of sarcasm there, given the way that he uses doing well in verse 19 of chapter 2. But either way, his point is clear. Showing partiality is a failure of the royal law, and yet another example of a claim to genuine faith that does not produce the, the kind of fruit that we expect from real faith. And so let's read from verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In case it wasn't clear from what he has already said, James makes it very clear here, so you can't miss it. Showing partiality is sin. And that word committing there has the same root as the word for works, which is what we're going to see in next week's passage Those who show partiality engage in a work of sin. Those of faith produce the fruit of good works. It would be tempting, don't you think, to treat partiality as not a big deal. 
Again, this is something that we can relate to readily. Oftentimes, it's someone who seeks to justify themselves. They might say, look, look, I know I'm not perfect, but, but I still try to do what's right. And most of the time, I do get it right. You know, I may have had a few lustful thoughts, but I haven't killed anybody. I'm not that bad. James here sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew 5, 19, where Jesus makes it crystal clear that even the smallest or seemingly insignificant commandment still matters. And that's because God has always been a perfect God and His requirement has always been nothing less than perfection. This is because God is not just about his people keeping his rules, and that the one who can you know, keep the most number of them and the one who uh, you know, keeps them to the highest degree and he can keep them for as long as possible will be considered the greatest in his kingdom. That's the fundamental mistake, after all, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law made in Jesus' day. They missed the thread that is right throughout the Old Testament and captured in Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You see, God has always been clear that what He desires is complete heart, mind, and soul, love and devotion to Him. Obeying His commandments is about the attitude towards Him as much as it is about actually obeying them. I don't think it's a coincidence here that James makes a similar point to Jesus in Matthew 5 about keeping the whole law and about how if you, if you transgress this part, then you transgress the whole thing. And then takes two examples from the Ten Commandments that Jesus also expands on in Matthew 5. Those of murder and adultery. And by taking both of these examples and pointing them out pointing out that it doesn't matter which law you break, that it doesn't matter if there are actually some that you do manage to keep perfectly. I have not murdered anybody and I don't plan to for the rest of my life. Unless, no, I won't say that. But it doesn't matter. James is showing that a transgression of any part of the law is a transgression of the whole law. You are just as guilty if you show partiality, even if that partiality is only in your own mind, as the one who has murdered or committed adultery. That's a pretty rough gig. For most of us, I'm sure we would feel pretty hard done by if we got the death penalty just for not talking to someone. And the reason we feel that way is because you and I too easily fail to appreciate the holiness of God. This has often been called the doctrine of total depravity. That is the Bible's teaching that you and I are naturally born in sin and therefore unable to perfectly keep God's law. And as a result, we deserve the death penalty. In order to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect, we would need to be able to perfectly keep every single one of God's commandments. And James makes it clear, just as Jesus did, that we cannot do that. 
So where on earth do we go from here? And that takes us to our final point. Show mercy as you have been shown mercy. Let's read verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. If that phrasing of so speak and so act sounds a bit strange to you, that's because the ESV here is trying to encapsulate the Greek, which specifically emphasizes individually both speaking and acting. Another way of saying this is like saying, speak this way and act this way. And in saying this, James is referring to what he has just said in verses 8 to 11, which can be summarized in the next part of the sentence. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. As I mentioned earlier, this is a term that James used in the last chapter and was connected all the way back to the word of truth. So when we see this term, we don't just immediately think what we would instinctively think when we hear the words judge and law in the same sentence. Instinctively, we would think that James here is saying, make sure you are on your best behavior and make sure that you don't break the law, otherwise you will be judged. That would be reading it with works as part of the root of salvation. But by simple fact of the title, the law of liberty, and the way that James has used that term already, and because of what he's about to say next, I think it's pretty clear that James is not saying that. As a matter of fact, I think it's clear that James is here making the points that he made in last week's passage which is that the Christian is the person who has been saved by God's mercy and responded in faith, and that faith produces the fruit of good works. And in this particular instance, the good work that James is highlighting is not showing partiality. This is made even clearer by verse 13. Let's read. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This kind of ethic that is a a sort of, you know, do to others as you would have them do to you, is not only common in the Old Testament, but also in Jesus' teaching. You know, that golden rule, as well as the commandment that James quoted in verse 8 and Matthew 6.15, they are all good examples of this. James's point here, as was Jesus's, is that the fruit of a Christian's life is to be expressed in the way that they mirror God. In the way that they be like Him. That is why Jesus can say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the point of Him saying that is not to try and, and make you, you know, drag yourself up to a standard that He knows is impossible for you to keep and then laugh at you because you can't keep it. The point is to highlight to you the fact that you need salvation from your totally depraved, sinful state. 
And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, perhaps you're wondering more about what it means to be one. Let me tell you that there is good news that comes with what is perhaps the worst news that you have ever heard. It's not every day that somebody tells you that you are imperfect, that you're sinful, and you're unable to do what God has required of you. I admit, that doesn't, that doesn't sound great. But the good news is that even though you and I treat others not as people, but as commodities even though we value people more for what they can do for us than for who they are. God is not like that. He's not. See, if God were to treat us like that, then we would remain stuck with the death penalty. Because there's nothing that we can offer Him. He's perfect. He's complete. There is no higher society that he can move up into. There is no currency that we can mine that is of any value to him. There is no exclusive club that we, only we, can give him access to. He is the Lord of glory. And if he were to show partiality to us based on our merit, we would be sitting far lower than on the floor at his feet. But praise God, he's not like that. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The one who has the right, the only one who could do so without any wrongdoing, the very one who would be able to leave us all out of the cool group and kick us out into the eternal fire of hell, chooses instead to show sovereign mercy to his people. The one who possesses all the riches of the universe doesn't choose to hoard them to himself, but instead comes down to us, the spiritually poor and destitute, so that through faith in him, we might receive his riches. Friend, if you have not yet received God's mercy and put your trust in Jesus, he's calling you today and offering that to you. Do not let that pass you by. The good news of the gospel calls each of us to respond to God's mercy and to continually respond to it in faith by being like him and showing mercy to others. When we look to Christ, when we see the Lord of glory, the one who was infinitely rich, yet for our sake became poor, when we love the one who loved us, when we were so unlovely, we see that the sin of partiality is nothing more than chasing after fool's gold and fading glories. Brothers and sisters, how can you cultivate a heart that does not look at people with the world's eyes, but with God's? 
You see, there's a danger of being impartial in practice and still having evil judgments and evil thoughts. You see, you can, you can outwardly abstain from treating someone with favoritism and then you can still, in your own mind, consider them to be beneath you. And unless you dig deeper, you can convince yourself and others that you don't have a problem with showing partiality. What things are you drawn to in others that make you want to show favoritism to them? Maybe you want to be wealthy or in high society or in the cool group. Or maybe you just want to be comfortable and have relationships where you can hang out with the people that you like. Just don't want to bother yourself with the harder ones. What is it that you need to repent of? What do you need to reflect more on and grow in in order to be able to come on a Sunday morning and to look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ and any others who might walk into our church and say to each face in your mind, you are someone made in the image of God and I love you and I will continue to strive to love you more. How might you meditate on God's great mercy in Jesus and seek to show that same mercy to your fellow image bearers? It begins in the heart. It begins in your heart. It begins in mine. And brothers and sisters, how can we as a church continue to grow in this and to encourage one another in this together? Not having reserved seating is a good start. But would you be prepared if, as a result of our efforts to reach the poor in our community, people came in off the street and joined us for a free lunch every week? Are you ready to welcome and provide for and love and seek to share the gospel with such fellow image bearers? How can you encourage your fellow members of the body of Christ? How can we spur one another on to see others as God sees them, people who are worth laying aside their riches and glory for? Brothers and sisters, mercy triumphs over judgment because in the end, that is ultimately what we will receive from God. Mercy. And it triumphs over judgment also because as God works in us by His Spirit, our hearts and our minds grow in mercy instead of partial judgment 
in our thoughts towards others. How do we break the cycle of partiality in our churches, in our lives, and in our hearts? Mercy triumphs over judgment. May we look to Christ. May we look to our Lord and Savior, the Lord of glory, who in His mercy gave up the riches of heaven for us so that we who are poor might receive Him through faith and might receive the riches that He has promised. How can you meditate on that more and so shape your heart towards others? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the King of glory. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was rich yet for our sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Father, please continue to work in us and in our hearts so that our desire would be more and more for you so that the fruit of our lives might more and more mirror the great mercy and love of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.